Let's uh, give a round of applause. Thank you, Sophia, for sharing um, that with us. Um, I want to encourage you to, um, to, to do that, um, maybe in your house churches, to get a prayer cast. There's one for every country, and I think each country has um, a believer from that that uh, from the local church there, a native believer there, um, praying and expressing his or her heart for that country. So um, that'd be an awesome thing for you to do. Can you uh, turn to someone and say, uh, God loves you? Can you do that? All right. And can you look at someone else and say, God loves the world? And then can you look at someone else and say, that's why we're here? Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Out there, but in here, it's Friday. <laughs> we're Friday. Uh, we're in uh, Friday of, of Passion Week. Uh, it's actually the beginning of, of Passion Week today with Palm Sunday. Um, what we do this week, historically and traditionally throughout our church, is uh, on Friday night, there'll be a Good Friday worship service in our main sanctuary. It'll be an all-church bilingual worship service. I'll be sharing the word, preaching the word. And then on Saturday morning, we'll be meeting for an all-church morning prayer service where um, our Vietnam House Church Shepherd will be sharing, um, will be sharing the Word of God. So I um, invite you to come out. But during this week, what we do is we fast dinners. That means from 4 p.m. until, the, until we wake up the next morning, we spend the, the evening fasting in order that for one last week of Lent, we can really seek to enter into an understanding of what Christ has done for us in a deeper way. We've been doing this for many years. In fact, um, I remember all the way back in 2005, March of 2005, it was Passion Week. I remember it because it was supposed to be one of the best weeks of my life. Um, it was Passion Week. We were seeking the Lord. We are seeking the face of God. We're going to be fasting and, and leading up to Resurrection Sunday. I was so excited. I was so amped up uh, because not only that, but Olivia and I were dating long distance at the time, and she was in Virginia, and I was here in Orlando, and she was coming down to visit for Passion Week. So I was really excited about that. Uh, she got down, and um, as we were talking about the week, I quickly realized that even though I'm fasting dinners, uh, she wasn't. And so this made for a little bit of a, of a difficult exchange because I would ask her what she's doing on a given night, and she'd say, I'm going to go out with so-and-so from, you know, church people. I said, what are you guys going to do? She said, oh, we're going to eat here, and then we're going to go do this and do this and this and that. And I thought to myself, wow, aren't they supposed to be fasting dinners? So this was like I had FOMO before FOMO ever became a thing, right? I had this colossal fear of missing out, but I also had this sense in which, ah, oh, you know what? Those unspiritual people are not fasting. Why? Don't they love Jesus? Like, don't they love Jesus? Do they... And, and, and so Monday came and went like that, and then Tuesday came. What are you doing Tuesday? Oh, I'm going out with this group of people. We're going to go out and eat, and, and they're having a good old time. They're coming back to, you know, wherever it is, and they're laughing and having a grand time. And I started feeling like, oh, my gosh, these guys are such, do they even know Jesus? Like, do they even love Jesus? It was so bad. I was having all of these terrible thoughts in my mind. Wednesday came, Thursday came by Good Friday service. I was, like, so angry. I don't, I don't know what it was. It was like... I mean, this was supposed to be like a, a spiritually exhilarating, like I'm going to reach the mountaintops of glory. I'm going to understand the cross. Just what, if someone mentions the cross, I'm going to start weeping and crying because I'm never going to lose the wonder, the wonder of his mercy and glory of Calvary. And, and it wasn't like that. And I would think about Jesus and I would just get so angry because I had given up all of these things for him that Passion Week, but nobody else seemed to have done the same thing. And so there was anger and there was bitterness. Have anyone been there before? Like you feel like you're overly spiritual compared to the spiritual little people around you? Like they're all spiritual infants. They're like spiritual toddlers and I'm a spiritual man. Like I'm an adult, at least a teenager maybe. 
But everyone else, oh, and, and I had these feelings not only of anger and bitterness, but of self-righteousness, of pride. My goodness, they should at least pretend like they're fasting or something. And I remember we got to Good Friday service. It came and went, and then Saturday morning prayer came, and, and I remember sitting in that morning prayer service, and I'm like, dude, I don't even want to pray. Like, tomorrow's Easter, but I'm not even excited. I, don't even, I was a pastor. I was a youth pastor at the time. Um, I was going to graduate from seminary a month later, but I was like, I don't even want to go to church on Easter Sunday. I'm so angry at these people. I'm so angry at, at, at everything. The cross doesn't move my heart. I just feel so hardened to it. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about the, the, the reality of the message that I just heard that, that morning, and I thought, wow, I've completely missed the point. Because, you see, I'd made it not about Jesus at all. I'd made it about myself. And as I sat there in the presence of my Savior in that worship sanctuary in Hiawassee Road, the only thing I could think was, man, God, I failed you. Jesus, I failed you. You ever been there before? You felt like you failed Jesus? Felt like you had all these grand dreams of what you're going to do for Jesus and you got there and to that point and you look back and you realize that where you were was a far cry from where you thought you were going to be or you thought this was going to be the most amazing retreat or the most amazing worship service, the most amazing mission trip and because your attitude was not there, because you had a crush on some dude, because you were distracted, your mind was divided by something, whatever it might be, because you had these issues back home, it got to the end of it all and, and you realize, man, I didn't, I didn't really use this, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be and you look back and you felt like you'd failed Jesus. You ever felt like that before? I don't know if you have. You're looking at, nobody's nodding their head, so maybe you haven't. But I've been there, and I've been there a lot. I was there this week. I've been there many times in my life. What happened? Today I want to talk about spiritual failure as we move into Friday. Because on Friday night, you know, on Friday morning, actually about 9 o'clock until, well, some say 9, some say 12, until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus, the Savior of the world, was crucified nailed on a Roman cross for the sins of the world, forgiveness of the sins of those who would believe in him. That's Friday. We're going to talk about that on Good Friday evening, um, this, this Friday. But today, I want to talk about what happened before that and after the events of Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. What happened in that in-between? We're going to look at Mark chapter 14. You remember last week that late into the night, on Thursday night, Jesus was in anguish and in deep distress because he was thinking about the cup of wrath that he was to drink in the stead of sinful humanity, people like you and me. And in the anguish of soul, he asked his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to come and pray with me. And three times he asked them to pray, and three times they failed. And after Jesus had prayed, he got up, and he said, my betrayer comes. And his, one of his devoted 12 Judas betrayed him with a kiss. That's how the soldiers knew that that was Jesus. And hundreds of soldiers armed with weapons, as if they needed such a thing, came and they arrested Jesus. And for the next couple hours, they made a mockery of a trial. Because their minds had already been set because of the events of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, that they were going to nail Jesus to a cross, but they needed to find a charge, and the Jewish leadership needed to find a charge, and so they called him a blasphemer. He said he's the son of God so that they could ship him off to Rome so that the Romans, who alone could execute criminals through crucifixion, uh, would judge him guilty of insurrection and trying to overthrow the Caesar. 
And so this is what's happening. And in that time, in that time after Gethsemane, Jesus has been arrested. He's been called guilty by the Jewish leadership. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. And he's been spit on, not to the degree that would happen at the hands of the Romans, but the Jewish leaders have mocked him. And so they've beaten him and they've hurt him. And in this time, here's Peter. The other 10 of the other disciples have left him. Peter and John remain as they're walking to see what's going to happen to their master, their pastor, their teacher, their leader, their shepherd for the past three and a half years. What's going to happen to him? He's beaten and he's bloodied. And as they follow him, we get to Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72, and we're going to see what happens next. This happens between 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning on Friday, just hours before his crucifixion. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know what, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, hey, this fellow was one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Spiritual failure. This is God's word. Who was Peter? Well, you know from last week that Peter, just a couple hours before, was commissioned as one of three people to hold the rope for Jesus. Jesus said, I need you guys, Peter, James, John, I need you to pray for me. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It was Peter, not only chosen to be one of the three there, but he was one of the three who was chosen to go up on the mountain of transfiguration to see Jesus in all of his glory. So Peter had seen things that no other disciple had seen. If Jesus' call was to neglect nobody, to embrace everyone, and to focus on a few, then Peter was one of the few that he focused upon. Peter, James, and John. It was Peter on the Sea of Galilee that night of Jesus' anguish and torment when his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded in the midst of the stormy seas when Jesus came walking in the middle of the morning. It was Peter who said, Jesus, if that's really you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. It was Peter of all the other disciples who took that step of faith outside of the boat and walked on water by the glory of God. That's Peter. That's Peter. And it's the same Peter of whom Jesus said, hey, you know what, Peter? Look at this. In, in, in just a little while, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. You're going to deny that you ever knew me. And Peter said, no, 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 not me. In fact, when Jesus got arrested, you remember this? When Jesus was arrested, there was a man named Malchus there, the gospel accounts say. Peter took out his sword and he chopped off Malchus's ear. 
Right? He was saying, Jesus, not on my watch. You ain't going to die under my watch. I'm going to stand for my master. I'm going to stand for my teacher. I'm going to be here. Then Jesus gets arrested. He gets taken away. And then here goes Peter along with John, and they follow Jesus to try and see what's going to happen. This was Peter's way of saying, even if everyone else leaves you, Jesus, I'm going to remain true because 10 others had gone, but it was him and it was John, and they were following. In fact, the only reason Peter got into the high priest's courtyard, which is where the whack Jewish trial was happening, the only way he got in was because John knew the high priest, and he said to the servant girl who was keeping the door, he said, hey, let Peter come in. And so Peter comes in, and he's following Jesus also because he wants to see what's going to happen to his master. And as he's watching, as he's following Jesus, he sees Jesus get beaten and he realizes, oh my gosh, if this happening to Jesus, maybe it's going to happen to me also. And as he's thinking these thoughts, it says a servant girl came to him while, she, while he was warming himself and she looked closely at him. Literally, he was, she was staring at him, staring at him. So he's starting to feel a little bit weird. This Teenage girl is staring at him, and then she blurts out, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. And he's afraid for what's going to happen to him. And so what does he do? He says, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. And then filled with fear of what's happening, he went into the entryway, and he began to hide within that place. Now, the gospel accounts record all this happening really quickly, but these three denials take place over a period of about two hours. So from 1 o'clock in the morning where it begins until about 3 o'clock in the morning. And so sometime later, she comes again, and, and she says to the people around, she gets others, and she said, this fellow's one of them. This fellow was one of them. And Peter, this time, even more violently says, no, I wasn't. I ain't one of them. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't associate me with that man, Jesus. And then at about 3 a.m., there was a bunch of people standing nearby. And other gospel accounts say because of his accent, right? Some of us don't speak English that well because we came from a different country, came from Korea or we came from uh, some other country. And so people look at us and, and they hear our accent. You're not an American. You're not. You weren't born here. And with your Korean accent, you say, yes, I was. They're like, no, your accent gives it away. They say his accent gave it away, that he was a Galilean. He was one of Jesus' people, and he knows that he's been blown. And so what does he do? What can you do? What do you do if you know, if you know that you're busted, if you know that you've been identified as one of Jesus' people, and there are consequences for following Jesus? What do you do? Well, here's what he does. He does the most violent thing he can do. He began to call curses down on himself, and he swore to them. He said, I swear to God on my own life, on my grave. I don't know who he is. I don't know him. And he incurs the wrath of God on his own head because he doesn't want to be identified with Jesus. And then the rooster crows, and Peter remembers what Jesus said. Hey, I told you, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And in other places, as Jesus looked at him with his bloodied, sweat-stained, spit-on-his-face face, Jesus looks at Peter. And all the commentators say this was not a look of anger, of I told you so, of condemnation, of Dang it, Peter, I needed you and you failed me again. It was a look of love. It was a look of grace. It was a look of mercy 
and of kindness that he could never before understand. And it says in other accounts, he wept bitterly. You ever felt this way? Where your friends were hanging out and it was time for you to go to church or it was time for you to eat and you knew that you wanted to pray before it was time or you knew you had to go to house church, you had to go to SNF. And there was this fighting and this tension within you because you don't want to let people know that you follow Jesus. And Peter was torn between this place. What I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the anatomy of a spiritual failure because if you're anything like me, we've been there and we've seen it and we've experienced it and we don't like it, but there's a message for all of us in this. The first thing that I want to show us is that failure today is often, okay, often stems from failure yesterday. Okay. Your failure today often stems from your failure yesterday. What was it that caused Peter to deny Jesus three times? See, Peter, Jesus had said, hey, you, you know what, Peter? The night before, he said, Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fall. And then Peter begins to say, oh, Jesus, you're usually right, Jesus, but this time you're wrong. I'm not going to mess up. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fail. And Jesus says, you know what? Hey, when the shepherd gets struck, the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter's like, again, Jesus, I understand that. I understand Judas, yeah, Andrew, yeah, Bartholomew, yeah, Thaddeus, yeah, but not me. And these other guys, remember, they're not as spiritual. They don't fast on Passion Week like I do. Not me. They're going to fall away, but not me. Not me, Jesus. And Jesus says it again. He says it at the Mount of Olives, right? Chapter 14, uh, he, he says, I tell you the truth, today, even tonight before the rooster crows, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. I will die before I deny you, Jesus. That's what Peter said. But what happened? What was Peter doing? Here's what Peter was doing. Peter was flexing his spiritual muscles in front of Jesus, and he would soon realize that his muscles were not strong enough against the wily tactics of a supernatural enemy. Hey, a lot of times we do this, don't we? In our self-righteousness, this is what I was doing. I'm better than everybody else. I'm more spiritual than they are. But you know what happens? When you try to fight against a supernatural enemy, your own resources are insufficient to the task. And a lot of times, can I tell you, your supposed strength actually becomes your greatest weakness because it keeps you from depending upon the Lord God. That's why the Apostle Paul says when we're weak, that's when we're actually strong. And it's why he also says if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. See, it was Peter. Right? It was Peter who said, you know what? Even if everyone else denies you, I'm not going to deny you because I'm strong. Spiritually, I've done my weightlifting. I walked on water. I saw all of these things in glory. I'm not going to deny you, Jesus. I'm going to stand for you. That's what he said. And so what happened the night before when Jesus said, I need you to pray? Why does he tell him to pray? Because he's in anguish of overwhelming sorrow to the point of death. Absolutely. But look what he says in chapter 14. He says it in verse 38. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Not so that I will not fall into temptation. Yeah, Jesus needed that. But he said, Peter, understand this. You need to pray or else you're going to fall into temptation. In other words, the failure on Friday came because he had already failed on Thursday. 
How many times did he tell him to pray? Three times. How many times did he find him not praying? Three times. How many times did he deny Jesus? Three times. The failure of Friday came because he'd already failed on Thursday. And our failures of today oftentimes stem from our failures of yesterday. In other words, what was Peter? Peter looked awesome. He looked spiritually like he had it. He was strong. He was awesome. He was mighty. But you know what? Here's something that I've come to realize. You can look great from afar, but in reality, be far from great. That's how a lot of us are, aren't we? That's how a lot of us are. In fact, I, you know, I was in California uh, a few weeks ago, and one of the things that I, that I did, uh, amongst other things, was spend some time with some friends of mine who are pastors. Uh, we've known each other for a long time. And one Sunday morning, I was, I was uh, right after I was uh, preached at a church, I met up with some other, uh, other leaders, and they were telling me about an email that they got about a friend that we knew from uh, back in our former, former life. Um, good guy, felt the call to ministry, planted a church uh, up in the uh, in northern states, planted a church, and everything was going great. And that Sunday morning, my buddy got an email that this pastor had been accused, this church planter had been accused by multiple people within the church of serious misconduct, the kind of stuff that ruins and destroys multiple families. Obviously not the first time I've heard things like this. I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time, and my friend was so devastated. He was, uh, they were close, close friends, stood in each other's weddings, and as we're talking about it, the, the first time, and I remember the first time I heard about one of my spiritual heroes falling. I was probably about 24, 25 years old. It's happened so many times since that time. Missionaries, pastors, that's why we got to pray for our people all the time. First time I've, I heard about one, uh, a, a, a spiritual leader, a Christian leader falling into gross and heinous sin, I was shocked. Like, is that even pop? Like, they, they must have the wrong person. It must be a mistake, surprise, shock. And as I grew older and I heard more of these things, that shock and surprise no longer, it was no longer that, it was, but it was, I was sickened. Are you kidding me? Like they did that? But now as I've lived life a little bit longer, I'm older, maybe not necessarily wiser, but I've seen enough to not be shocked and not be surprised and not necessarily be sickened by it. But now I just get scared, I'll be honest. Because this is, this is us. It can happen to any of us. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. It can happen to anybody. In fact, you go, it, Peter doesn't come out of a vacuum here. The, the, the giants of the faith throughout scripture it was abraham father of the faith it was moses to deliver the people of god it was david the greatest king a man after god's own it was these spiritual heroes forefront on the stage of human history not little extras who played a side piece but major people in the history of christianity what does that tell you what does that tell me it says it can happen to anybody and it does happen to anybody because we have an infernal enemy and for us to think oh i'm not gonna fall even if everyone else does it's not me that is that is hubris that's not even pride that's false pride to the extreme if you think you're standing 
be careful that you don't fall. It's what Jesus is saying to Peter. It's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. It's what he's saying to us. How is it that people can look so great in public and then the next day we find out and read about them in the newspaper? I'll tell you why. Because a public failure has always been preceded by a private failure. It's what we like to say here. The secret to life, my friends, is your life in secret. The things that nobody sees is going to be who you are tomorrow. I'm not just talking about your literal and figurative uh, literal tomorrows. I'm saying you want to, your, your victories in marriage stem from your victories as a single person. Your failures in marriage come because you failed as a single person. Okay, some of you are saying, I can't wait to get married. You need to get your life straight before you get married or else you're going to bring other people down with you. Failure today often comes because you failed yesterday. And their failures on Friday, his failure on Friday came because he'd failed on Thursday. Every day, as long as it's today, and you got to fight. I got to fight. We got to fight for God's glory and for victory. We got to pray, depending upon the Lord, receiving the strength of God and the word of God. Because we live today. It's not only our failure today, but your victory tomorrow comes because of your victory today. You understand this? When you put your hand to the plow and you grind and you grind and you grind in order to live faithfully for God, God doesn't ignore that. He always sees that. And when you're victorious today, even though nobody sees it, you pile up victory after victory after victory of dependence upon the Lord. That's going to lead to an even greater victory because the secret to life is your life in secret. It's the first thing that we see. Failure today often stems from failure yesterday. Second thing that we see here is failure is not far behind when you're following Jesus from a distance. When you're following Jesus from a distance, I will say that failure will ultimately be inevitable. What's Peter doing? He wants to follow Jesus, and he really does. But in this passage, it, it makes clear that he's not where Jesus is. In fact, in Luke 22, verse 54, it says, Peter followed from a distance. I think a lot of us follow Jesus in this way. We want to follow Jesus, definitely. So we follow him on Sunday morning, not a problem. Like we can, we can easily, hey, we're here, we're here, we're hugging people, we're loving everybody else. But as soon as Monday comes around, we're embarrassed to admit where we've been on Sunday. Or we go to our house church and we're active. We come to our church uh, cleaning day and we come to SNF. We go to our house churches and we go on mission trips. But when people ask us, what do you do? We don't want to tell people that we follow a crucified Messiah, risen from the dead. Because we worry what people are going to think about us. And so while we want the benefits of heaven and the glories of a forgiven life, we don't want to follow too closely because it might cost us something or might lead us to sacrifice something for the sake of the gospel. We follow Jesus, but we do so from an arm's length away. And we want to stay within the crowds. Because we don't want to follow Jesus if it's going to cost us that much. And so here's Peter, and he's struggling. And isn't this what we do sometimes? Struggling between faith and fear. Between courage and cowardice. I want to live for God, but at the same time, I don't want to do it if it's going to cost too much. That's oftentimes how we live. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you what Peter would say? 
failure is not far behind if you're following Jesus from a distance. Can you follow Jesus closely enough that you get the rabbi's dust on your clothes and on your face so that people know that you've been with Jesus? Are you willing to love and to follow Jesus? And that Peter said that even if I die, I'll follow you. I won't deny you. But he followed from a distance. I wonder if, if Peter was right where Jesus was during these times when the servant, when he was standing right next to a bloody Jesus. When the servant girl came, a teenage girl, mind you, a teenage girl comes up to Peter. If Peter was standing right next to Jesus and she said, you knew him, do you think he would have denied Jesus then? I don't believe he would have. I think he would have stood up for Jesus. Isn't that why when he was right next to Jesus, he chopped off Malchus's ear? Because as long as Jesus was close to him, he could stand for him. But as soon as that distance came between him and Jesus, he began to fall and he began to fail and he began to falter. Because it's inevitable when we follow Jesus from a distance. If the bloodied and beaten Jesus had been next to him, when all of these people said, your Galilean accent gives it away, do you think he would have said, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I don't know this man next to me. How about for us as we seek to follow Jesus in the day-to-day here? If you knew that Jesus was sitting next to you in the school cafeteria, would that cause you to say, I don't wanna, I'm, I'm ashamed of him, I don't want to pray before I eat. If you knew that you were following Jesus that closely, if you knew that Jesus was with you wherever you went in the workplace, and someone was saying, hey, let's cut corners, let's cheat on our time card, whatever it is, if you knew that Jesus was with you, do you think that you would still fall into the same sins that you fall into had you known that Jesus was right near you? In those moments where you're watching that movie, you know, you know sometimes you watch a movie with your parents, and that R-rated scene comes on. Like, how many of you are like, oh, man, I'm so glad my parents are here right now. This is awesome. Like, we can talk about it. This is like sex education here. How many of you love that? No one loves that. What if Jesus was sitting next to you? Would the thoughts be different? Maybe uh, I shouldn't watch this. Maybe I should, maybe I should live differently. Because it's when we begin to let Jesus get a distance away from us that failure is not far behind. Living in Orlando, we've come to realize that there's a lot of great things that tourists like to do, and now and then we as townies get to do also. Maybe not as exciting as uh, the Universal Studios or Disney World, but there's a local attraction that is probably pretty exciting for all of us Jesus lovers called the Holy Land Experience. Yes. No. <laughs> I remember, well, I remember the first time I went, I was thinking, wow, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait to ride uh, uh, Elijah's chariot, or I can't wait to ride some, the, the Sea of Galilee ride, or whatever it is. And you go there, and there's no such thing. There's just like the oldest Bible that's ever been written is there. That's cool. There's a little replica of Jerusalem that you could look at. There's a replica of the temple. And these things are pretty cool, but not if you're expecting flying Dumbo rides or, you know, uh, I don't know, big, big Viking ships that take you on, like flip you upside down. And, and so um, it wasn't the most exciting thing to chaperone a vacation Bible school class of the Holy Land. And so uh, that came and went. But another time after that, Olivia was teaching at uh, a local Christian school many, many years ago. She was teaching second grade. And she said, do you want to go to the Holy Land experience and be a chaperone? 
for my second graders. I said, okay, I would love to go. That would be fun. You know, it's free. We don't have to pay anything. So we'll go and we'll have a spiritual experience there. And it was great. And so we went. I don't know what the kids were thinking. I don't know if they thought, again, that there would be rides and shows and all kinds of stuff. Not much there for them, them, for the, uh, there for them to do. But the one thing, the highlight of the thing was that there was a reenactment on the grand stage of the Gospel of Mark, which we're reading through right now. A reenactment of the Gospel of Mark. And so there's this beautiful man with long brown hair and blue eyes, and, and he had this manila robe with a brown belt, and that was Jesus. So Jesus was there. And as these second graders are looking at Jesus, they're in awe that Jesus has come to them. And so here's Jesus. He's acting out uh, the gospel of Mark, and he's doing his thing. And it gets to Mark chapter 10 when Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And he says, come, little children. And the kids are so excited that they could get into the show, and so they jump up. And and basically the only people left in the audience on that particular school day were the teachers and chaperones. It was like eight of us and then like a bunch of kids up there. The kids are coming, and Jesus is teaching them, and they're they're like fighting to see who gets closest to Jesus. It was beautiful. And then Mark chapter 10 finishes, that section finishes, but they don't have the gall to tell the kids to go and sit down. How do you tell a kid to to, to stop following Jesus? So they follow Jesus throughout the rest of chapter 10. Blind Bartimaeus gets healed. The beggar gets healed. Here's a leper. Jesus touches him. And the kids are still following Jesus. Gets to chapter 11, the triumphal entry. Chapter 12, Jesus is being beaten, but the kids are still there. Jesus gets crucified. That's when they realize, well, we should maybe sit down now. This is a little bit too much for us. They go and sit down. Jesus gets crucified, Jesus gets resurrected, lights come on, bam, and then the show ends. And they're like, wow, and they give a clap, and they're like, yeah, we were entered into the story of Jesus. And then it ended, and then they went to lunch. So there we are, sitting, these picnic benches, eating lunch, talking about Jesus. We're so close to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, I thought it was a little bit comical that two of the kids started fighting over who's going to sit closer to each other or who's going to sit, why are you stepping, you've infringed upon my property line and you can't come past this line. And Like, dude, you just met Jesus and you're acting like this, but they're fighting over that. All of a sudden, one of the kids on the other side looks behind us and his eyes get all big. He's like, everyone look, there's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was trying to go a little bit incognito to the restroom. And so Jesus walking, he's like, hello, kids. And the kids are following Jesus. They're swarming him. And the teachers had to pull them back and say, kids, kids, come sit down. But the desire of these little children to follow Jesus. And I asked myself, what if I were that serious about following Jesus? What if we were that serious about following Jesus? That even if he goes into stinky, smelly, dark places that I'd be willing to go and follow him. That even if he says, come, I'm working over here, would you join me? Yeah, Jesus, where are you going? I'm going to Japan. Would you go with him to those places? You see, when we follow from a distance, and failure is not far behind, when we hear Jesus call in his invitation to follow, and we follow him, the The challenge with Peter, that he followed a distance away. Maybe you're following Jesus in that way also. What does it look like for you to follow Jesus a little bit more closely? 
What does it mean to follow him on the day-to-day, to follow him at work, to follow him at school, to follow him at home, to follow him in your devotional time, to follow him when no one else is following him? What does that look like for you to follow him? That's the second thing that we see because when we're following from a distance, then failure is inevitable. Last thing that we see, last thing that we see for anyone who's fallen, who's failed, who's messed up, if you failed, then I encourage you and the word of God encourages you to stick around for the rest of the story. Stick around for the rest of the story because no failure is final and no failure is fatal. You're always looking at your story in the middle of the story, but Jesus is not done writing that story. He's got the pen in his hand as the author and the perfecter of your faith. If you've ever failed, you know, you know, or you need to know that it's not the end of the story. Again, this didn't come out of nowhere, came out of somewhere, came out of the pages of Scripture where constantly people fail, but you look at the redemption of God in their lives and you realize that the failure is not final, nor is it fatal. If only Judas had stuck around long enough to see the end of the story. Because he too, just hours before Peter had failed, had done the same thing in a different way. 30 pieces of silver, I'll sell him out with a kiss so that you know who to So you know who to arrest and who to crucify. But Judas, when he saw Jesus being manhandled the way that he did, realized he'd made a mistake, went to the people and said, I'm sorry, here's your money back. They said, we don't want your money because we got your man. And he's going to be nailed to a cross. And in fear, in an absolute, just overwhelmed with feelings of condemnation and shame and guilt, it says he threw the money away and he took his life like so many are doing. What if Judas, what if the young people of Japan stuck around long enough to see the rest of the story? Would their response have been different? Because Peter stuck around when he saw the look of love that came from the bloodied face of his Savior. Peter didn't run. He thought immediately, I need to get to Jesus. I need to, I need to repent of my failures. I need to repent of my sin because I know that Jesus doesn't condemn me. I know that he forgives me for all of the wrong that I've ever done. Because you see, Jesus wanted to make clear to Peter that his failure was not the end of the story. In fact, Jesus would later, you'll see this at the end of John's gospel in chapter 21, Jesus not only pronounced his forgiveness three times, but he recommissioned him to a mission. And can I tell you something? That it wasn't Peter's strength that made him into the preacher who preached and 3,000 people a few weeks later came to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Okay, understand that. It wasn't, his, it wasn't his strength that did that. It wasn't his gifts. It was his failure. In fact, his failure was his greatest gift to the kingdom. And the same is true of you and me. Because your failure can get you into places where your success and your strength can't. On uh, Monday, this past Monday, uh, my alma mater, I'm very proud to say this, the University of Virginia lifted up the trophy as the national basketball champions of 2019. And the crowd goes wild. It was an amazing thing. But what was even more amazing about it was that it happened in light of what happened last year, almost exactly a year earlier. Because the University of Virginia, UVA, was in the same place that they were this year. In fact, they were in a better place. 
They were the strongest of the 64 teams. They were given the number one overall seed. And they were expected to win the tournament. But something happened to them that has never happened to a number one seed ever in the history of basketball. They lost in the first round to the number 16 seed. Not only was it a defeat, it was a smackdown of epic proportions. We got waxed, absolutely destroyed. And in the aftermath of that, our coach, Tony Bennett, who's a brother, follower of Christ, got smeared through the national media, local media. They said things like, you'll never be able to take a team to the championship. You'll never be able to win in the tournament because their style of play doesn't dictate victory when the chips are on the line. They uh, said that the players choked. The players didn't have what it took, takes. So the coach said his mission for the next year was to let these people know that this failure doesn't define you. This is not who you are. And he said, how you respond to this failure will do one of two things. One, it, you'll let it define your life and the rest of your life will be marked by this. Or you can take it and what happens through failure is that this will lead you on it. It will be a ticket to take you in a place where you could have never gone had you not failed. They said for the next year, one of the guys, the most outstanding player of the tournament, uh, Kyle Guy, he kept a picture of their loss on his cell phone for an entire year to remind himself, hey, let's learn the lessons that we need to learn and let's be the best that we can be. And so they banded together as a band of brothers. They went through adversity. They went through hardship. People doubted them. People talked about them. People crucified them in the media, on the news, on podcasts. They said they'll never be able to do it. But they said we stuck together. And each game, in the first round this year, they were losing by about 15 points, and everyone was saying it's the same thing. It's 2018 all over again. But they said, we've been through this before. We know how to handle this. And they worked together, and they won. And each game they won, people started saying, it's destiny. There are there some games they shouldn't have won. It was crazy. They said, they're a team of destiny. They said, no, the reason why we're able to win today is because we won in our yesterdays. The entire year we've been working. We've been working together. We've been coming together been coming together and at the end they said we couldn't have done this had we not lost last year and they also said we wouldn't have done it had it uh, we wouldn't have won if we had played for any other coach than Tony Bennett what you do with your failures makes all the difference in the world because this is what Jesus is a master at doing taking your seeming failures your great failures and turning it into a great blessing far beyond anything that you could have predicted or imagined. That's what he did with UVA. It's what he did with Peter. It's what he does at the cross. Just a few hours later, Jesus would take Peter's failure and he would hang it upon his shoulders. He would take my failure and he would put it upon his shoulders. He would take every failure of every human being and he would bear the weight of that upon himself and he would be nailed to the cross. And when everyone looked and said, what kind of a world changer is he? What kind of a king of the Jews is he? What kind of a leader is he? What good is a tortured teacher? What good is a mangled Messiah? But this is what our God is masterful at doing using our weakness and making it into our greatest strength, taking our brokenness and making it into our greatest glory. That's what Jesus does. That's what our God does. And he did that for me 14 years ago. I was sitting at that prayer meeting in March 26, 2005, just steaming 
about how everyone else had failed and I had done it right, but still I feel like an utter failure. As I sat there at that Saturday morning prayer meeting, I said, God, I don't have anything to say. I've blown it and I've messed up. And, and I, I just sat there in silence for about five minutes, and then I began to hear the word of God speaking into my heart. He said, David, I didn't send my son to die for people who had it right. I didn't send my son to die for people who are perfect, who are sinless, who never failed. I sent my son to die for people who failed, who blew it, who are self-righteous, who are prideful, who looked at other people with content and disdain, who didn't love the people he was called to love. I died for, pe- I died for people like you. That's why I sent my son to the cross. And as I sat there and I began to receive the grace of God, the look of love that spoke and washed over my heart, all of a sudden this cleansing flood came over my heart and I said, God, I want to follow you. And it was later over the next period of minutes leading into the next hour where I, who had made a decision to leave Orlando and was going to tell our church the next day, began to feel the call of God in my heart to stay and to love a people that you had failed to love. Because these people, you see, are part of a harvest that's plentiful. The workers are few. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And on that day, March 26, 2005, I felt the call of God to plant my roots here and to say, God, I'm going to give my life so that people in this city and in this area could come to know of Jesus and to live their lives for his glory. God had transformed my biggest fail. Well, it wasn't biggest. I failed in many other ways, but failed, turned one of my failures into one of the greatest blessings in my life because that's what he does. That's what he does. You failed because you didn't follow too closely, because you failed yesterday. Hey, the story's not done because he's got the pen in his hand and he's writing it out on the canvas of your life. You go to him and receive his grace. You'll receive his blessing like never before. Let's pray together. Let's pray as we uh, commit our hearts to the Lord God. This Passion Week, what does it look like to live today for the glory of God? What does it look like to live today in dependence upon the Lord, to follow Jesus? Because what it looks like today will probably look very similar to what it looks like tomorrow when you wake up. You win tomorrow for the glory of God. And then on Tuesday, you wake up and you win Tuesday for the glory of God. You don't live five days at a time. You live each day in dependence upon the Lord, winning the victories today so that you can live in that victory tomorrow, the victory of Christ who's making all things new. Can we pray together for a minute? Just committing our hearts. Lord, I want to live today for you and then to wake up again the next day to live that day for you. Let's move to Jesus, especially if you failed. Let's exchange your failure for his blessing. Let's move towards the Lord right now, spend a few moments in prayer, and then I'll pray and we'll continue to worship the Lord. Father in heaven, we come to you as people who 
have failed because of so many different reasons and in so many different ways. We failed because the presenting issue was that the world was a little bit more beautiful to us in that moment than Jesus was. Because sin was a little bit more pleasurable than following Jesus was. Because the approval of people was greater than the approval of Jesus. But underlying all of that, Father, we confess that we followed from afar. We confess that we've lived in our own strength rather than depending upon you. So many times oblivious to the temptations to come and the enemy that lurks. So, Father, we pray that you would remind us again today and then each day that the secret to life is our life in secret. We can show off a person that we are in front of our house church, in front of our Sunday school students, but who we really are is seen when no one else is around. And so, Lord, would you awaken us to the realities of things that we often do not see and the things that we try to hide, that we would bring them to the light in confession and repentance so that in receiving the forgiveness that was secured at the cross, we could live in the glorious freedom that you've won for us. May we live in victory, anchored and buoyed by a love of God that we see. In the events of Passion Week, particularly at the cross. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray that you would help us to continue to love you more and more each day. In Jesus' name we pray.